0: Help us choose which books to read next on Send Me to Sleep. You can vote using the link in the episode notes. Thanks everyone. Welcome to Send Me to Sleep, the place to find a good night's rest. My name's Andrew, and I'm so pleased you've joined me tonight and taken this time for yourself to ensure you get a peaceful night's sleep. Tonight, I'll be reading Part 2, Chapters 23-25 to 25 of Anna Karenina by Leo Tolstoy. In the last chapter, we discovered that Anna was with child. In tonight's story, Vronsky tries to convince Anna to run away with him. If you haven't already, find a nice place to get cosy. Take a deep, relaxing breath. And settle your body in whatever way feels most comfortable. Now all you'll need to do is follow the sound of my voice. So let your eyes fall heavy and your breath soften as we settle in for a peaceful night's sleep. Chapter 23 Vronsky had several times already, though not so resolutely as now, tried to bring her to consider their position, and every time he had been confronted by the same superficiality and triviality with which she met his appeal now. It was as though there were something in this which she could not or would not face as though directly she began to speak of this. She, the real Anna, retreated somehow into herself, and another strange and unaccountable woman came out, whom he did not love, and whom he feared, and who was in opposition to him. But today, he was resolved to have it out. Whether he knows or not, said Vronsky, in his usual quiet and resolute tone. That's nothing to do with us. We cannot, you cannot stay like this, especially now. What's to be done, according to you? She asked, with the same frivolous irony. She who had so feared he would take her condition too lightly was now vexed with him for deducing from it the necessity of taking some step. Tell him everything and leave him. Very well. Let us suppose I do that, she said. Do you know what the result of that would be? I can tell you it all beforehand. And a wicked light gleamed in her eyes but had been soft a minute before. A, you love another man and have entered into criminal intrigues with him. Mimicking her husband, she threw an emphasis on the word criminal, as Alexei Alexandrovich did. I warned you of the result of the religious, the civil and the domestic relation. You have not listened to me. Now I cannot let you disgrace my name. And my son, she had meant to say, but about her son, she could not jest. Disgrace my name, and, and more in the same style, she added. In general terms, he'll say in his official manner, and with all distinctness and precision, that he cannot let me go, but will take all measure in his power to prevent scandal, and he will calmly and punctually act in accordance with his words. That's what will happen. He's not a man, but a machine, and a spiteful machine when he's angry," she added recalling Alexei Alexandrovitch as she spoke, with all the peculiarities of his figure and manner of speaking, and reckoning against him every defect she could find in him, softening nothing for the great wrong she herself was doing him. But Anna, said Vronsky, in a soft and persuasive voice, trying to soothe her We absolutely must, anyway. Tell him, and then be guided by the line he takes. What? Run away? And why not run away? I don't see how we can keep on like this, and not for my sake. I see that you suffer. Yes, run away and become your mistress, she said angrily. Anna, he said, with reproachful tenderness. Yes, she went on, become your mistress and complete the ruin of. Again, she would have said, my son, but she could not utter that word. Vronsky could not understand how she, with her strong and truthful nature, could endure this state of deceit and not long to get out of it, but he did not suspect that the chief cause of this was the word son, which she could not bring herself to pronounce. When she thought of her son and his future attitude to his mother, who had abandoned his father, she felt terror at what she had done. That she could not face it, but, like a woman, could only try to comfort herself with lying assurances that everything would remain as it always had been, and that it was possible to forget the fearful question of how it would be with her son. I beg you, I entreat you, she said suddenly, taking his hand and speaking in quite a different tone, sincere and tender. Never speak to me of that. But Anna, never. Leave it to me. I know all the baseness, all the horror of my position, but it's not so easy to arrange as you think. And leave it to me, and do what I say, never speak to me of it. Do you promise me? No, no, promise. I promise everything, but I can't be at peace, especially after what you've told me. I can't be at peace, when you can't be at peace. I," she repeated. Yes, I am worried sometimes, but that will pass, if you will never talk about this. When you talk about it, it's only then that it worries me. I don't understand, he said. I know, she interrupted him, how hard it is for your truthful nature to lie, and I grieve for you. I often think that you have ruined your whole life for me. I was just thinking the very same thing," he said. How could you sacrifice everything for my sake? I can't forgive myself that you're unhappy." "I unhappy, she said, coming closer to him and looking at him with an ecstatic smile of love. I am like a hungry man who has been given food. He may be cold dressed in rags, and ashamed. But he is not unhappy. I, unhappy? No. This is my unhappiness. She could hear the sound of her son's voice coming towards them, and glancing swiftly round the terrace, she got up impulsively. Her eyes glowed with the fire he knew so well, With a rapid movement, she raised her lovely hands, covered with rings, took his head, looked a long look into his face, and, putting up her face with smiling, parted lips, swiftly kissed his mouth and both eyes, and pushed him away. She would have gone, but he held her back, When? he murmured in a whisper, gazing in ecstasy at her. Tonight, at one o'clock, she whispered, and with a heavy sigh, she walked with her light, swift step to meet her son. Siosia had been caught by the rain in the big garden, and he and his nurse had taken shelter in an arbor. Well, au revoir, she said to Vronsky. I must soon be getting ready for the races. Betsy promised to fetch me. Vronsky, looking at his watch, went away hurriedly. Chapter 24 When Vronsky looked at his watch on the Karenin's balcony, he was so greatly agitated and lost in his thoughts that he saw the figures on the watch's face but could not take in what time it was. He came out on the high road and walked, picking his way carefully through the mud to his carriage He was so completely absorbed in his feelings for Anna that he did not even think what a clock it was and whether he had time to go to Briansky's. He had left him, as often happens, only the external faculty of his memory that points out each step one has to take, one after the other. He went up to his coachman who was dozing on the box in the shadow, already lengthening, of a thick lime tree. He admired the shifting clouds of midges circling over the hot horses, and, walking to the coachman, he jumped into the carriage and told him to drive to Bryansky's. It was only after driving nearly five miles... he had sufficiently recovered himself to look at his watch and realise that it was half past five and he was late. There were several races fixed for that day. The mounted guards race, then the officers mile and a half race, then the three mile race, and then the race for which he was entered. He could still be in time for his race, But if he went to Briansky's, he could only just be in time, and he would arrive when the whole of the court would be in their places. That would be a pity, but he had promised Briansky to come, so he decided to drive on, telling the coachman not to spare the horses. He reached Briansky's, spent five minutes there and galloped back. This rapid drive calmed him. All that was painful in his relations with Anna, all the feeling of indefiniteness left their conversation, had slipped out of his mind. He was thinking now with pleasure and excitement of the race, of his being anyhow, in time. And now and then, The thought of the blissful interview awaiting him that night flashed across his imagination like a flaming light. The excitement of his approaching race gained upon him as he drove further and further into the atmosphere of the races, overtaking carriages driving up from the summer villas or out of Petersburg. At his quarters, No one was left at home, all were at the races, and his valet was looking out for him at the gate. While he was changing his clothes, his valet told him that the second race had begun already, that a lot of gentlemen had been asking for him, and a boy had twice run up from the stables. Dressing without hurry, He never hurried himself and never lost his self-possession. Vronsky drove to the sheds. From the sheds he could see a perfect sea of carriages and people on foot, soldiers surrounding the racecourse and pavilions swarming with people. The second race was apparently going on, for just as he went into the sheds, he heard a bell ringing. Going towards the stable, he met the white-legged chestnut, Mahatin’s gladiator, being led to the racecourse in a blue forage horse cloth, with what looked like huge ears edged with blue. “Where’s cord?" he asked the stable boy In the stable, putting on the saddle. In the open horse box stood Fru Fru, saddle ready. They were just going to lead her out. I'm not too late. All right, all right, said the Englishman. Don't upset yourself. Vronsky once more took in, in one glance, the exquisite lines of his favorite mare, who was quivering all over, and with an effort he tore himself from the sight of her and went out of the stable. He went towards the pavilions at the most favorable moment for escaping attention. The mile and a half race was just finishing and all eyes were fixed on the horse guard in front and the light hussar behind, urging their horses on with a last effort close to the winning post. From the centre and outside of the ring, all were crowding with the winning post, and a group of soldiers and officers of the horse guards were shouting loudly their delight at the expected triumph of their officer and comrade. Vronsky moved into the middle of the crowd unnoticed, almost at the very moment when the bell rang at the finish of the race, and a tall, mud-spattered horse guard who came in first, bending over the saddle, let go the reins of his panting grey horse that looked dark with sweat. The horse stiffening out his legs with an effort stopped in rapid course, and the officer of the horse guards looked round him like a man waking up from a heavy sleep, and just managed to smile. A crowd of friends and outsiders pressed round him. Vronsky intentionally avoided that select crowd of the upper world, which was moving and talking with discreet freedom before the pavilions. He knew that Madame Karenina was there, and Betsy, and his brother's wife, and he supposedly did not go near them for fear of something distracting his attention. But he was continually met and stopped by acquaintances, who told them about the previous races, and kept asking him why he was late. At the time when the racers had to go to the pavilion to receive the prizes, and all attention was directed to that point, Vronsky's elder brother, Alexander, a colonel with heavy fringed epaulets, came up to him He was not tall, though as broadly built as Alexei, and handsomer and roycer than he. He had a red nose and an open, drunken-looking face. ''Did you get my note?'' he said. ''There's never any finding you.'' Alexander Voronsky, in spite of the dissolute life, and in especial the drunken habits, for which he was notorious, was quite one for the court circle. Now, as he talked to his brother of a matter bound to be exceedingly disagreeable to him, knowing that the eyes of many people might be fixed upon him, he kept a smiling countenance as though he were jesting with his brother about something of little moment. I got it, and I really can't make out what you are worrying yourself about, said Alexei. I'm worrying myself because the remark has just been made to me that you weren't here and that you were seen in Petterhof on Monday. There are matters which only concern those directly interested in them, and the matter you are so worried about is... Yes, but if so, you may as well cut the service. I beg you not to meddle, and that's all I have to say. Alexey Voronsky's frowning face turned white, and his prominent lower jaw quivered, which happened rarely with him. Being a man of very warm heart, he was seldom angry but when he was angry, and when his chin quivered, then, as Alexander Vronsky knew, he was dangerous. Alexander Vronsky smiled gaily. I only wanted to give you mother's letter. Answer it, and don't worry about anything just before the race. Bon chance, he added, smiling and he moved away from him. But after him, another friendly greeting brought Vronsky to a standstill. So you won't recognize your friends. How are you, Monsieur? said Stepan Arkadyevitch, as conspicuously brilliant in the midst of all the Petersburg brilliance as he was in Moscow, his face rosy and his whiskers sleek and glossy. "'I came up yesterday, and I'm delighted I shall see you triumph. When shall we meet?' "'Come tomorrow to the mess room,' said Vronsky, and squeezing him by the sleeve of his coat with apologies, he moved away to the centre of the racecourse, where the horses were being led for the great steeplechase.' The horses who had run in the last race were being led home, steaming and exhausted by the stable boys, and one after the other, the fresh horses for the coming race made their appearance. For the most part, English racers, wearing horse cloths and looking with their drawn-up bellies like strange, huge birds. On the right was led in frou-frou, lean and beautiful, lifting her elastic, rather long pasterns, as though moved by strings. Not far from her, they were taking off the rug from the lop-eared gladiator. The strong, exquisite, perfectly correct lines of the stallion, with his superb hindquarters and excessively short pastons, almost over his hooves attracted Vronsky's attention in spite of himself. He would have gone up to his mare, but he was again detained by an acquaintance. Oh, there's Karenin, said the acquaintance with whom he was chatting. He's looking for his wife, and she's in the middle of the pavilion, "'Didn't you see her?' "'No,' answered Vronsky, and without even glancing round towards the pavilion, where his friend was pointing out Madame Karenina, he went up to his mare. Vronsky had not had the time to look at the saddle, about which he had to give some direction, when the competitors were summoned to the pavilion to receive their numbers and places.' in the row at the starting. Seventeen officers, looking serious and severe, many with pale faces, met together in the pavilion and drew numbers. Vronsky drew the number seven. The cry was heard, Mount. Feeling that with the others riding in the race, he was the centre upon which all eyes were fastened. Vronsky walked up to his mare in that state of nervous tension in which he usually became deliberate and composed in his movements. Cord, in honour of the races, had put on his best clothes, a black coat buttoned up, a stiffly starched collar which propped up his cheeks, a round black hat and top boots, he was calm and dignified as ever, and was with his own hands holding Fru by both reins, standing straight in front of her. Fru was still trembling as though in a fever. Her eye, full of fire, glanced sideways at Vronsky. Vronsky slipped his finger under the saddle girth. The mare glanced aslant at him, drew up her lip, and twitched her ear. The Englishman puckered up his lips, intending to indicate a smile that anyone should verify his saddling. Get up, you won't feel so excited. Vronsky looked round for the last time at his rivals. He knew that he would not see them during the race two were already riding forward to the point from which they were to start. Galtzin, a friend of Vronsky's and one of his more formidable rivals, was moving round a bay horse that would not let him mount. A little light hussar in tight riding breeches rode off at a gallop, crouched up like a cat on the saddle, in imitation of the English jockeys. Prince Kozovlev sat with a white face on his thoroughbred mare from the Grabovsky stud, while an English groom led her by the bridle. Vronsky and all his comrades knew Kozovlev and his peculiarity of weak nerves and terrible vanity. They knew that he was afraid of everything, afraid of riding a spirited horse. But now, just because it was terrible... Because people broke their necks, and there was a doctor standing on each obstacle, and an ambulance with a cross on it, and a sister of mercy, he had made up his mind to take part in the race. Their eyes met, and Vronsky gave him a friendly and encouraging nod. Only one he did not see, his chief rival, Mahatin on Gladiator. Don't be in a hurry, said Cord to Vronsky, and remember one thing. Don't hold her at the fences, and don't urge her on. Let her go as she likes. Alright, alright, said Vronsky, taking the reins. If you can, lead the race, but don't lose heart till the last minute, even if you're behind Before the mare had time to move, Vronsky stepped with an agile, vigorous movement into the steel-toothed stirrup and lightly and firmly seated himself from the creaking leather of the saddle. Getting his right foot in the stirrup, he smoothed the double rein, as he always did, between his fingers, and Cord let go. As though he did not know which foot to put first, Fufu started dragging at the reins with her long neck, and as though she were on springs, shaking her rider from side to side. Cord quickened his step, following him. The excited mare, trying to shake off her rider, first on one side, then on the other, pulled at the reins. And Vronsky tried in vain, with voice and hand, to soothe her. They were reaching the dammed up stream on their way to the starting point. Several of the riders were in front and several behind, when suddenly, Vronsky heard the sound of a horse galloping in the mud behind him. He was overtaken by Mahatin on his white legged, lop eared gladiator. Mahatin smiled, showing his long teeth, but Vronsky looked angrily at him. He did not like him, and regarded him now as his most formidable rival. He was angry with him for galloping past and exciting his mare. Froufrou started into a gallop. Her left foot forward made two bounds, and fretting at the tightened reins, Passed into a jolting trot, bumped her rider up and down. Cord, too, scowled, and followed Vronsky almost at a trot. Chapter 25 There were 17 officers all riding in this race. The race course was a large three-mile ring of the form of an ellipse in front of the pavilion. On this course, nine obstacles had been arranged. The stream, a big and solid barrier five feet high, just before the pavilion. A dry ditch, a ditch full of water, a precipitous slope, an Irish barricade, One of the most difficult obstacles, consisting of a mound fence with brushwood, beyond which a ditch out of sight for the horses, so that the horse had to clear both the obstacles or might be killed. Then two more ditches filled with water, and one dry one, and the end of the race was just facing the pavilion. But the race began not in the ring, but 200 yards away from it, and in that part of the course was the first obstacle, a dammed upstream, 7 feet in breadth, which the racers could leap or wade through as they preferred. Three times they were ranged ready to start, but each time some horse thrust itself out of line and they had to begin again. The umpire who was starting them, Colonel Sestrin, was beginning to lose his temper when at last the fourth time he shouted, away, and the races started. Every eye, every opera glass was turned on the brightly coloured group of riders at the moment they were in line to start. They're off, they're starting was heard on all sides after the hush of expectation, and little groups and solitary figures among the public began running from place to place to get a better view. In the very first minute, the close group of horsemen drew out, and it could be seen that they were approaching the stream in twos and threes and one behind the other. To the spectators it seemed as though they had all started simultaneously, but to the racers, there were seconds of difference that had great value to them. Frufru, excited and overnervous, had lost the first moment, and several horses had started before her. But before reaching the stream, Vronsky, who was holding in the mare with all his force, as she tugged at the bridle, easily overtook three, and there were left in front of him Mahatin's chestnut gladiator, whose hindquarters were moving lightly and rhythmically up and down exactly in front of Vronsky. and in front of all the dainty mare Diana bearing Kozovlev more dead than alive. For the first instant, Vronsky was not master either of himself or his mare. Up to the first obstacle, the stream, he could not guide the motion of his mare. Gladiator and Diana came up to it together, and almost at the same instant, simultaneously they rose above the stream and flew across to the other side. Froufrou darted after them, as if flying, but at the very moment when Vronsky felt himself in the air, he suddenly saw, almost under his mare's hoofs, Kozovlev, who was floundering with Diana on the further side of the stream. Kozovlev had let go the reins as he took the leap, and the mare had sent him flying over her head. Those details Vronsky learned later. At the moment, all he saw was that just under him, where fru must alight, Diana's legs or head might be in the way. But Fru- Fru drew up her legs and back in the very act of leaping, like a falling cat, and clearing the other mare, alighted beyond her. Oh, the darling, thought Vronsky. After crossing the stream, Vronsky had complete control of his mare and began holding her in, intending to cross the Great Barrier behind Mahatin and to try to overtake him in the clear ground of about five hundred yards that followed it. The Great Barrier stood just in front of the Imperial Pavilion. The Tsar and the whole court and crowd of people were all gazing at them, at him and a length ahead of him as they drew near the devil, as the solid barrier was called. Vronsky was aware of those eyes fastened upon him from all sides, but he saw nothing except the ears and neck of his own mare, the ground racing to meet him, and the black and white legs of gladiator beating swiftly in time before him. And keeping always the same distance ahead, Gladiator rose, with no sound of knocking against anything. With a wave of his short tail, he disappeared from Vronsky's sight. Bravo, cried a voice. At the same instant, under Vronsky's eyes, right before him, flashed the palings of the barrier. Without the slightest change in her action, his mare flew over it, the palings vanished, and he heard only a crash behind him. The mare, excited by gladiators keeping ahead, had risen too soon before the barrier and grazed it with her hind hooves, but her pace never changed, and Vronsky, feeling a spatter of mud on his face, realized that he was once more the same distance from Gladiator. Once more he perceived in front of him the same black and short tail, and again the same swiftly moving white legs that got no further away. At the very moment when Vronsky thought that now was the time to overtake Mahatin, herself understanding his thoughts, without an incitement on his part, gained ground considerably, and began getting alongside of Mahatin on the most favourable side, close to the inner cord. Mahatin would not let her pass that side. Vronsky had hardly formed the thought that he could perhaps pass on the other side, when Froufrou shifted her pace and began overtaking him on the other. Frufu's shoulder, beginning by now to be dark with sweat, was even with gladiator's back. For a few lengths they moved evenly, but before the obstacle they were approaching, Vronsky began working at the reins, anxious to avoid having to take the outer circle, and swiftly passed Mahadin just upon the declivity. He caught a glimpse of his mud-stained face as he flashed by. He even fancied that he smiled. Vronsky passed Mahatin, but he was immediately aware of him close upon him, and he never ceased hearing the even thudding hooves and the rapid and still quite fresh breathing of Gladiator. The next two obstacles, The watercourse and the barrier were easily crossed, but Vronsky began to hear the snorting and thud of gladiator close upon him. He urged on his mare, and to his delight felt that she quickened her pace, and the thud of gladiator's hooves were again heard at the same distance away. Vronsky was at the head of the race, just as he wanted to be and as Cord had advised, and now he felt sure of being the winner. His excitement, his delight, and his tenderness for Fru-Fru grew keener and keener. He longed to look round again, but he did not dare do this, and tried to be cool and not to urge on his mare so to keep the same reserve of force in her as he felt that Gladiator still kept. There remained only one obstacle, the most difficult. If he could cross it ahead of the others, he would come in first. He was flying towards the Irish barricade. Fru and he both together saw the barricade in the distance, and both the man and the mayor had a moment of hesitation. He saw the uncertainty in the mare's ears and lifted the whip, but at the same time felt that his fears were groundless. The mare knew what was wanted. She quickened her pace and rose smoothly, just as he had fancied she would, and as she left the ground gave herself up to the force of her rush, which carried her far beyond the ditch and with the same rhythm, without effort, with the same leg forward, Frufu fell back into her place again. Bravo, Vronsky, he heard shouts from a knot of men. He knew they were his friends in the regiment, who were standing at the obstacle. He could not fail to recognize Yashvin's voice, though he did not see him. Oh my sweet, he said inwardly to Fru, as he listened for what was happening behind. He's cleared it, he thought, catching the thud of gladiators' hooves behind him. There remained only the last ditch, filled with water and five feet wide. Vronsky did not even look at it but anxious to get in a long way first began sawing away at the reins, lifting the mare's head and letting it go in time with her paces. He felt that the mare was at her very last reserve of strength. Not her neck and shoulders were merely wet, but the sweat was standing in drops on her mane, her head, her sharp ears, and her breath came in short, sharp gasps. But he knew that she had strength left more than enough for the remaining 500 yards. It was only from feeling himself nearer the ground and from the peculiar smoothness of his motion that Vronsky knew how greatly the mare had quickened her pace. She flew over the ditch as though not noticing it. She flew over it like a bird, But at the same instant, Vronsky, to his horror, felt that he had failed to keep up the mare's pace, that he had, he did not know how, made a fearful, unpardonable mistake in recovering his seat in the saddle. All at once, his position had shifted, and he knew that something awful had happened. He could not yet make out what had happened when the white legs of a chestnut horse flashed by him close and Mahatin passed at a swift gallop. Vronsky was touching the ground with one foot, and his mare was sinking on that foot. He just had time to free his leg when she fell on one side, gasping painfully, and making vain efforts to rise her delicate, soaking neck. She fluttered on the ground at his feet like a shot bird. The clumsy movement made by Vronsky had broken her back, but that he only knew much later. At that moment, he knew only that Mahatin had flown swiftly by while he stood staggering alone on the muddy, motionless ground, and Frou-Frou lay gasping before him bending her head back and gazing at him with her exquisite eyes. Still unable to realize what had happened, Vronsky tugged at his mare's reins. Again, she struggled all over like a fish, and her shoulders setting the saddle heavy. She rose on her front legs, but unable to lift her back, she quivered all over and again fell on her side, with a face hideous with passion, his lower jaw trembling, his cheeks white. Vronsky kicked her with his heels in the stomach, and again fell to tugging at the rein. She did not stir, but thrusting her nose into the ground, she simply gazed at her master, with her eyes speaking. A. Ay, hey, groaned Vronsky, clutching at his head. Ay, hey, what have I done? He cried. The race lost, and my fault, shameful, unpardonable, and the poor darling ruined mare. Ay, what have I done? A crowd of men. A doctor and his assistant, the officers of his regiment, ran up to him. To his misery, he felt that he was home and unhurt. The mayor had broken her back, and it was decided to let her go. Vronsky could not answer questions, could not speak to anyone, and without picking up his cap that had fallen off, walked away from the racecourse, not knowing where he was going. He felt utterly wretched. For the first time in his life, he knew the bitterest sort of misfortune, misfortune beyond remedy, and caused by his own fault. Yashvin overtook him with his cap and led him home, and half an hour later, Vronsky had regained his self-possession, but the memory of that race remained for long in his heart, the cruelest and bitterest memory of his life.